Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey guys, this is When Diplomacy Fails, the long war, and you're listening to episode 10. If this is your first time listening to When Diplomacy Fails, I would encourage you to check out our back catalogue because... Yes, it's rather large. Many, many, many hours of historical ridiculousness and fascinating stories await you. So if you feel as though you're enjoying your... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you feel as though this episode kind of tickles your fancy for diplomatic history, then make sure to check out those past episodes. Other than that, I hope you enjoy this latest installment of The Long War. But before I get into that, as is my want, I just want to talk to you a little tiny bit about something I like to call WDFpodcast.com. In case you weren't aware, When Diplomacy Fails has its own website... And this website is full of wonderful things. Well, three things in particular should draw your attention. The first is the fact that there is a shop there. You can go and find the shop and you can purchase any manner of Wayne Diplomacy Fails merchandise, including pens, t-shirts, mugs, bottle openers. Very big fan of the bottle openers at the moment. Except I'm doing dry November, which means I can't drink any alcohol in November. It's for my own good, I'm told, but the worst thing about it is not being able to use one of those slick When Diplomacy Fails bottle openers. They're wonderful, and I would recommend you checking them out. 
The second thing you can look for is our archive. When Diplomacy Fails is pretty much all archived in the website. Of course, you can find all of the episodes in the feed anyway, but if you're the kind of person who likes to just go through like trips down memory lane in a nicely laid out format, then eventually, hopefully, the archive will be up to your standards. I'm still working on it, and it's a one-man show, so thanks for your patience, and make sure and check that out. The third and final thing is something which I would like you guys to check out if you have the time. You see, every Wednesday, if you weren't aware, we release a new blog post on a whole variety of things, ranging from history podcasting itself to a different topic in history. I'm going to start putting the links to the blog in every episode so that you can find it more easily if you're interested. It just means that rather than always listening to me, you'll have something to kind of read as well, just in case you couldn't get enough of When Diplomacy Fails. So yeah, those are the three things on that website, wdfpodcast.com. You have the archive, you have the shop, and you have the blog. Of course, you also have the podcast, you also have me, you also have Patreon, you also have all these wonderful things. So go and check that out. wdfpodcast.com is the hub for all wonderful things, when diplomacy fails. But enough of this, enough of this chit-chat. Let's get down to business. You guys are really great for listening. I really appreciate it. And in return, from me to you, here is, uninterrupted from here on in at least, episode 10 of The Long War. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to our 10th installment of The Long War. Last time we continued our analysis of the diplomacy across Europe, we examined how it was that the different theatres were so connected to one another. We also met Albert Caprara, the philosophy lecturer turned emergency envoy, sent to Constantinople to investigate precisely what was going down in the Ottoman camp. Caprara's message was that war between the Ottomans and the Habsburgs was essentially inevitable, and that the Turk was mobilising his allies and his armies in preparation for a grand conflict. At this moment, in autumn 1682, it could not be stated for certain where this Ottoman force would be aimed, but what was certain was that the Habsburgs didn't have to contend merely with this theatre. The Rhine, as much as the sensitive Hungarian border region, resembled gaping holes in the Habsburg sense of security. As much as was possible, Habsburg agents had attempted to mobilise various leagues and powers against the Bourbons in anticipation of what many believed would be a transition from a cold war to a very hot one. Louis XIV's seizure of Strasbourg in September 1681 and his subsequent blockade of Luxembourg had left everyone on edge, but French forces had backed away as Louis waited to see which way the wind would blow. As we saw last time, French diplomacy was more than happy to make use of this wind for apparently nefarious purposes, as the Ottoman Grand Vizier Karim Mustafa was repeatedly encouraged to begin his invasion of Hungary in force to offset Habsburg attentions and leave Louis with a free hand in the West. Such strategy was the continuation of a French tradition aimed at distracting the enemy in the centre of Europe while they reaped the benefits. For his part, the Holy Roman Emperor Leopold had yet to glean any significant advantages from his own diplomatic campaigns by autumn 1682, and so he had come to rely mostly on promises from sympathetic neighbours, mainly in Swedish, Dutch, Spanish and minor German quarters, while Louis and his own allies seemed to look hungrily on, eagerly awaiting the ripe opportunity to strike. 
This opportunity seemed ideal when Vienna finally learned exactly how grave the situation was in the East by the summer of 1682. Far from willing to retain the truce until 1684, when it would naturally expire by default, since it had been signed 20 years earlier, the Ottomans were preparing for a campaign not seen in such force since the beginning of the century. High off recent victories in Poland and in Russia, hint, check out the Jan Sobieski biography miniseries for more on that, it seemed as though the Turk was eager for vengeance against the eternal enemy to the West once again. Faced with the double threat from the East and West, there was little Leopold could do but double down on his diplomatic efforts. Mercifully for him, these efforts would finally bear fruit in the court of the Polish king, Jan Sobieski, whose own campaigns against the Ottomans had rendered him certain of another big showdown, and also somewhat desirous of revenge. For the sake of the Commonwealth as much as Christendom then, the Habsburgs and Poles seemed destined to become firm allies. Yet this process was far from simple, in spite of what the historical record may show today, and Leopold still had to factor in the diplomatic hurdles of his own princes and subjects within the Holy Roman Empire, as this episode will show. If you're ready, and yes, the deck is pretty much stacked for this episode too, I will now take you to autumn 1682. If we will not take actions, Kara Mustafa will subdue not only Habsburg Hungary, but also Vienna by the end of the summer. Men like me will be slaughtered. Everything of value will be taken from the city. The people will have to convert to Islam and the city will be used as a great base from which to conquer the rest of Europe. The King of Poland, Jan Sobieski, in an appeal to the nobles at the Commonwealth's same in Warsaw, Spring 1683. The prospects were unmistakably bleak. Insecure on their immediate borders, thanks to the ongoing Hungarian revolt, and feeling somewhat uneasy about the French to the west, it seemed inconceivable that Leopold or his court would delay in their endeavours to prepare themselves for a war in the east. Yet, call it denial, call it ignorance, or call it a misplaced sense of optimism, the Spanish faction within Leopold's court looked first to the west before any such plans for an eastern defence were made. Perhaps considering the context of Leopold's position, such an approach made sense, yet it must have been somewhat unnerving for the returning Albert Caprara to denote that the Habsburgs continued to move soldiers away from the eastern front, rather than towards it. The reason for this remained the Spanish faction's intense belief, up to the point of delusion, that the Ottomans would not launch an all-out assault in the next year, and that even if they did, the newly refurbished set of Habsburg fortresses would delay them long enough for the redirection of soldiers to the east. This belief was underlined by the strategy of mobilising forces in the west to use against the Turks. Yet because nobody along the Rhine would mobilise or even meet with Leopold to discuss a common defence strategy, out of fear of what Louis XIV would do in response, Leopold's agents continued to return to the Hofburg empty-handed. From such results, the fact was clear. The King of France was deliberately undermining the Habsburg ability 
to mobilize against its eastern foe. If the Spanish faction saw the pacification of Louis as the best means to then meet the Turkish threat, they were not alone. Along the Rhine, the Elector of the Palatine insisted that he could not be seen to meet with Leopold in Regensburg until both the Habsburgs and Bourbons had signed a common accord. The Elector knew full well that it would be his lands up for ravaging by the French once Louis wished to intervene himself. He continued to insist that it was impossible to serve the Palatinate and the Emperor as one, and he also denigrated the Turkish threat in comparison to the very menacing, to him at least, French one. The story was the same in Mines. By the way, before we go any further, a huge thanks to my wonderful patron, David Lund, for letting me know that Mines is not in fact Mainz. I apologise, I don't really know why I was pronouncing it as Mainz all this time. I mean, I can understand in the one sense why I would, but yes, I feel like Mines makes a lot more sense. So to those of you cringing all this time because I'm pronouncing it wrong... You can thank David Lund for the fact that that cringing will no longer take place. Unless, of course, I forget myself and remind you all that I'm human. But either way, it's mines, not mains. And let's move on. Thank you very much again, David Lund. Anyway, the story was the same in mines and Cologne, where neither ecclesiastical electors were willing to come to Regensburg and meet with Leopold. Such was the hold over German hearts and minds that the Sun King had that without even acting, Louis was preventing the Habsburgs from organising a proper eastern defence. Positioned ominously across the Upper Rhine, all it would take was a brief campaign and a day or two's ride for the French to encounter and then occupy the vast majority of these Rhineland electorates. Thus, a process of rearmament began in earnest among the different Rhinish circles, as collections of smaller German rulers, together with the larger ones like Saxony and Bavaria, threw their weight behind a policy that would enable them, well, they hoped, to tread a heavily armed third way of neutrality. Under such circumstances, where these arming German rulers were not quite ready to put their growing forces to the test in the face of the overwhelming French might, Leopold's agents were still destined to draw a diplomatic blank, at least for another few months. In time, perhaps, the Rhine would be able to serve as a buffer to the French and a boon to the security of Leopold, but until that time came, it would have been suicide to openly side with Louis' Habsburg rival. Having said that, though, as the year of 1682 progressed, both Saxony and Bavaria were looking far more formidable than they had ever been before, and the definite growth in military strength seemed to imbue each elector with confidence, even while the planned expansions had not quite been finished. While it would have been better to wait for the preparation of the collective circles to complete their individual rearmament, thus bulking up the available soldiers on hand, both Saxony and Bavaria had managed to construct nearly 10,000 men apiece by the end of summer 1682. If Leopold's agents could begin negotiations in the autumn then, perhaps the results would now be more positive. Again, though, it would be a mistake to present either John George III of Saxony or Max Emmanuel of Bavaria as willing and ready to funnel their swollen armies into Leopold's service. Whether they were turned towards the French or the Ottomans, neither ruler would have felt completely liberated from his own local concerns when considering where to direct his force. In Bavaria's case, the youthful elector Max Emmanuel valued the leverage that his growing force granted him and was concerned for what would befall his lands if he gambled with this new army and lost. Far better it was, some in Munich advised him, 
to hold on to it for as long as possible until a better deal came his way. In the event, Max Emanuel managed to leverage a brilliant deal, all things considered, because those in Munich and perhaps Max Emanuel himself underestimated just how desperate for soldiers and support the Emperor was. It's worth considering how strikingly bad a deal it was for Leopold when the agents of the two rulers met in Munich and officially signed a treaty on the 23rd of January 1683. The terms of the Habsburg-Bavarian Treaty were as follows. Max Emanuel was obliged to furnish the Emperor with 8,000, where Leopold had originally requested 10,000. In return for this pledge, Leopold would provide the Bavarian elector with subsidies of 250,000 thalers a year in peace, or 450,000 thalers in times of war. Furthermore, if Leopold's court proved unable to pay this huge annual sum, Max Emmanuel would be given lands in lieu of these monies until the debt was paid. It was, if you can remember back, a deal eerily similar in many ways to that made between Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II and Maximilian I during the early phases of the Thirty Years' War. In that case, short on funds and high on problems, the Holy Roman Emperor had then promised the, at that stage, mere Duke of Bavaria, the moon, almost, if he would throw his lot in with the Habsburg family against its enemies, including the promotion to electoral status, which Maximilian's successors obviously inherited. Opportunism seemed to run in the family, as Max Emmanuel, Maximilian I's grandson, by the way, looked set to profit massively from his emperor's latest set of woes. On top of these immense subsidies, the emperor would shoulder much of the responsibility for defence in both theatres, with 15,000 men assigned in both East and West. The agreement was to be valid for a period of five years, and if Leopold's other allies left him, Max Emmanuel would not have to continue to adhere to it. In return, Leopold expected that Max Emmanuel would mobilise the Bavarian circles around him and provide further security. Circles, the Reichskreis in the Holy Roman Empire, sometimes worked and sometimes did not work so well. The idea was that the smaller groups of rulers and potentates would band together in a circle, often but not always dominated by the regional powers nearby. So for example, the Bavarian elector would generally have been expected to exert a level of influence over the smaller circles in Franconia and Swabia. In this case though, Max Emmanuel was able to persuade the Franconian circle, but not the Swabian one, the latter of which was located in southwest Germany and essentially straddled the border with France. The inferred message was received in Munich. French power still retained a hold on German fears. Yet Leopold had reasons to be positive with the Bavarian outcome by January 1683. Not only had the Francophile Bavarian Chancellor been deposed, but Max Emmanuel himself had ventured to Vienna to formalise the whole process, where he was wined and dined on the Emperor's expense. Present in May 1683 to review the Emperor's force, Max Emmanuel would certainly have imagined that he represented a vital military spoke in the Emperor's wheel, and he maintained throughout the duration of the agreement with Leopold that it was superseded by events in the West. If Louis XIV moved along the Rhine, in other words, Max Emmanuel would act in that theatre first. The case of Saxony was less straightforward, wouldn't you just know it, and his Hanoverian colleague seemed to fall in line with him. Both John George III of Saxony and Ernest Augustus of Hanover were mightily concerned at any suggestion of French initiatives along the Rhine. 
But what really kept both men awake was the threat in the north. In the space of a generation, George William of Brandenburg had transformed his own electorate into one of profound importance in the Baltic and northern Germany. Neither Saxony nor Hanover nor any of the great electors' smaller neighbours could afford to ignore not merely Brandenburg but also the division of that sphere into two distinct armed camps. Brandenburg, Denmark and the Bishop of Munster faced the Swedes, the House of Brunswick and the Duke of Holstein and the former group seemed to have a particular edge over the latter. The implications of this unequal balance threatened both the Duke of Hanover and the Elector of Saxony in different measure, particularly since it was heavily rumoured that Louis continued to incite Brandenburg and Denmark to attack while he would invade through Cologne and threaten their security from the west. To be a German ruler of any size along the Rhine or even within reasonable marching distance of Versailles at this point in history was a cause for concern. The safest bet was neutrality, and when even this was in jeopardy, it was safer still to rearm and bolster one's defences. Ernest Augustus believed that his security lay in raising 10,000 men for his defence and aligning with the Emperor. Saxony, on the other hand, seemed content to procrastinate for this moment. In Dresden's complicated regional patchwork of interests, it was necessary for John George III to consistently tread a murky line between the different armed camps in the area. Both he and his Hanoverian colleague remained in perpetual fear of an eruption of war along the Elbe Valley as the disparate armed camps brought their rivalries out into the open. John George was also painfully aware of how dependent he was on Dutch subsidies, yet The Hague proved more interested than the Duke of Hanover by this point, since Ernest Augustus at least signed a treaty with Leopold on the 14th of January 1683, pledging his support, at least on paper, to his emperor. So it was that the Saxon elector continued to polarise his people with his large army, while the Hanoverian duke was shocked to discover that the Dutch Peace Party was no longer interested in either his or Saxony's affairs, and that they had removed their initial offer of subsidies altogether. In response to the sudden Dutch apathy for Saxon or Hanoverian interests, Ernest Augustus, in desperation, turned to his emperor to support his army, which had then ballooned in size to nearly 10,000 men, and which he couldn't possibly support. Leopold proved receptive and somehow managed to provide the Hanoverians with 700,000 thalers to cover the cost of their force. The difference between the Bavarian and Hanoverian pledges, though, was that, according to the treaty, Hanover was not obliged to act militarily against the Ottomans. The treaty stipulated instead that Ernest Augustus would lead his troops personally along the Rhine to deter the French. This small print was important, guys, because when Vienna was besieged, the Duke of Hanover insisted that he had to think of his own concerns first. All that he could actually provide in the event of the Siege of Vienna was a small company of troops under the command of his son George, the man who few could have predicted would in time sit on the throne of Britain as King George I. Ah yes, it's almost as though this period of history is one of the juiciest we've ever seen. While Bavaria and Hanover at least provided something, and Saxony proved receptive only to back down at the last minute, in The Hague the Dutch were backpedalling on their original enthusiasm for an association of powers which included Spain, Sweden, the Emperor and some German figures as we saw to be directed against France. Such withdrawal and the reassertion of the peace party of its influence in the Netherlands was mostly due to news to the east and in Hungary, where an Ottoman advance suggested that the emperor would be distracted 
and that the Dutch would be faced yet again with shouldering the burdens of war. Rather than face this prospect, the Dutch endeavoured to avoid any outbreak of war whatsoever. This withdrawal from the apparent edge of the abyss was also made possible because Charles XI of Sweden and Louis XIV of France engaged in negotiations over late 1682 to properly come to some kind of agreement which would limit the likelihood of war breaking out in the region again. This apparent caution on the part of Louis XIV in late 1682 may appear uncharacteristic on the surface, especially when we consider just how much the Sun King seemed to value making everything more complicated for Leopold and his nominal allies, which by this point, and by default if nothing else, also included Sweden. Indeed, Habsburg negotiators for their part were convinced that Louis's increasingly active diplomacy in the Baltic and in the Holy Roman Empire suggested that France, rather than the Turks, were the most active in planning a campaign. Leopold's Spanish faction continued to hold firm and they refused to budge on the issue of Louis XIV. In return for a guarantee of peace, the King of France reportedly wanted recognition of his recent gains and an agreement from the Habsburgs to discuss other border regions which were supposedly belonging to France. Habsburg agents knew firsthand that these negotiations would serve as little more than an opportunity for the French to bully their way to a diplomatic victory, and so they held back, right at the point when Louis seemed to have the most leverage. Why then did Louis seem to pull back himself from agitating alongside his Brandenburg and Danish allies to provoke a conflict in the north of the Holy Roman Empire that might pull everyone in? The reason for Louis's apparent caution could be down to his own belief that he could afford to take things slowly and allow the tensions and threats to build. Since the longer he waited, the more the Germans and their allies would torture themselves while they tried to discern his intentions. On the other hand, it is worth remembering that one of Louis's major allies to the east had recently been detached and that this threw into jeopardy many of the plans he had had for the Baltic. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth had signed a treaty of alliance and mutual assistance with the Habsburgs, thus rendering it impossible that King Jan Sobieski would lead his hussars against the Swedes or any other of the nominal enemies of France. In years past, Sobieski had proved particularly disposed to treat and ally with France, mostly due to the influence of his French-born wife and Sobieski's inbuilt dispositions. Yet, with this wildcard absent, Louis knew that the French-sponsored Northern Bloc would lack the punch or threat it once represented to the Habsburgs in Sweden, freeing both to funnel defensive resources elsewhere. Especially in the case of the Habsburgs, not only was that Polish potential to cause greater chaos and confusion removed, but the King of Poland now represented the last, best hope for the Habsburgs after so many underwhelming years, attempting to diplomatically rouse the other powers of Europe to the Emperor's side. The time has finally come to examine these deliberations. So let's do it. The agreement which compelled Jan Sobieski to appear outside of Vienna at just the right time on the 12th of September 1683 was in fact an emergency stipulation of a wider treaty which, agreed between Sobieski and Leopold in the late autumn of 1682, provided above all for a joint offensive in both entities' favoured theatres. In other words, to put it another way, Sobieski wished to regain the Podol region for the Commonwealth, which had been seized in a previous war with the Ottomans, while the Habsburgs believed that the Commonwealth could provide an invaluable distraction in this sphere, while the frontier of Hungary became their focus. Although both rulers recognised the situation was grave, 
Sobieski had never been under any illusions in the past, there was little indication that the situation was as desperate as it would later transpire to have been. The Alliance was an agreement to wage disconnected wars in theatres they had a vested interest in, on the understanding that this would aid the other party. The agreement was not, first and foremost, an agreement to save Vienna or Krakow. This is because, although the Ottoman advance was unpredictable, neither city was believed as of yet to be in such peril. John Stoy made the point that Karl Mustafa never went to the trouble of publishing his plans for the large body of men under his command. As was the case with Louis XIV, the fear of the unknown or the unpredictable made Leopold and Sobieski still more eager to cooperate, and in a sense it could be said that if Mustafa had stipulated where his attack would be aimed, or perhaps let it be known through more subtle channels such as Albert Caprara, then the polish Habsburg Accord may well have taken a very different form. Sobieski did not sign it to save Vienna, guys. He signed it to give the Commonwealth a chance, in an offensive alliance, to act while their great enemy in the Ottoman Empire was distracted. It is thus representative of both parties' underestimation of the Ottoman capabilities that the emergency clause between the two men was the one which would later define the treaty. For his part, Sobieski had been greatly alarmed not merely by the Ottoman build-up, but also by the Habsburg loss of control over its Hungarian possessions. The loss of control caused intense instability along the Polish-Hungarian border, and it meant that the Hungarians under Tokali frequently raided into what were actually Commonwealth lands. Sobieski was understandably aggrieved by this, and he wanted to give the Habsburgs the chance to put this mutual threat to both of their states away. In particular, Sobieski could warn the Habsburgs of the damage which would follow it, and the warning seems to have been especially prophetic in this case. The Crimean Tartars chose to push through the gaps in the defences caused by the years of the Hungarian Revolt when the huge invasion actually came. In early October 1682, Sobieski had gone to his estate in Yavorov, secluded from the Commonwealth's political life in rural Ruthenia, where he was joined by his own close friends and, significantly enough, the Habsburg envoy. It was here in his secluded country estate that much of the groundwork was established between the two sides, and several of the previous sticking points were overcome. In the past, the somewhat natural borders that both entities shared, and the enemies they shared as a result, seemed to nominate both powers as obvious allies, yet in both the Habsburg and Commonwealth cases, the details had always gotten in the way. Sobieski, for his part, was constantly pushed towards a French accord by his French-born wife, and a large French party in the Commonwealth same consistently coerced and bribed its way through constitutional and legislative proceedings. Never would this be more dangerous than in the following spring, when Sobieski knew that whatever he agreed to with this Habsburg envoy would have to be ratified by the same in order for it to pass into Commonwealth law. In short, this would have provided a perfect opportunity for the influential nobles to object, and Louis XIV, not to mention Sobieski's wife, would have been well disposed to ensure that the Commonwealth remained on good terms with the French by avoiding making any deals with the Habsburgs. Both Sobieski and Leopold had sought to speed at least the personal negotiations between each other along by casting aside their previous objections and demands. Sobieski no longer agitated for a marriage between a Habsburg princess and his son, Jacob. In return, Leopold agreed to make the alliance an offensive one in nature, 
whereas he had previously only been willing to go as far as a defensive alliance. That's right, Leopold of all people was trying to make demands. Leopold's hesitation was founded in his fear that such an agreement would provoke the Ottomans unnecessarily. Yet, the plain fact that Leopold's court had reluctantly come to learn, even if it had yet to fully accept it, was that the Ottomans were on the move regardless, and it was too late in the game by now to worry about the Turks' hurt feelings. Leopold's envoy made it clear that the Habsburgs would dip into their apparently limitless treasury to supplement the Commonwealth army, if Sobieski could raise an army of 40,000 to attack in the Podol region and provide the necessary distraction. In return, Leopold would uphold his side of the military bargain by sending some 60,000 of his own troops into Hungary. John Stoy nicely summarises the agreement reached by the two powers, writing, This agreement squared with the most favourable view of the immediate future. A danger of great but not intolerable magnitude compelled the two powers to act simultaneously, but in widely separated theatres of war. On the other hand, they also arranged, if the worst imaginable possibility occurred and the Turks laid siege to either Vienna or Kragov, that the threatened government would call on the direct aid of its ally. This was an emergency stipulation and it was mutually acceptable. As John Stoy infers, it was mutually acceptable, perhaps because neither party realised that such an eventuality would ever come to pass. The impression from both sides was that Sobieski believed he could continue as usual and effectively resume his wars with the Ottomans in the contested Podol Theatre, while the Habsburgs waged their own war further south. Either way, however misplaced the other's ambitions were, it remained for the same to approve of the treaty, and in mid-January 1683 the same met to discuss it. To speed along proceedings, the same appointed a 38-man committee made up of dissenters, approvers and neutrals to debate and discuss matters with the Hasburg ambassador extraordinaire, who had been sent for the very purpose of speeding things along himself and acting in Leopold's name. The aim, if it was not obvious yet, it was to push along the treaty. Considering the tendency of the Commonwealth's same to demur and procrastinate, though, such an outcome would be a victory in itself, if it could be achieved by the end of spring. Certainly by spring 1683, the Ottomans were beginning to move the disparate pieces of their military machine together. It was never more evident by this point that time was of the essence. Meanwhile, in Krakow, the Habsburg ambassador was forced to engage in achingly slow processions, while the committee members argued over every little detail even while they declared themselves compliant and in agreement with the Alliance Treaty on principle. Bribery was commonplace in such an atmosphere, egged on by the presence of the Papal Envoy, there to help push the treaty through, and the French party, there to stall it at all costs. Leopold's status as Holy Roman Emperor and hereditary ruler of the Habsburg lands slowed the proceedings, as did a suggestion from a returning Russian envoy that the Commonwealth should attempt to recruit the Tsar into the agreement as did the form of oath which the Habsburgs and Commonwealth deputies could agree to take in the treaty's name. The whole debate required a careful hand and great skill to navigate, and Sobieski proved himself more than adept. The King of Poland had since dropped his exterior plans to effectively hire the Swedish Empire and send Charles XI against Brandenburg, a fact which seemed to put the French more at ease, reduced the interference normally exercised by Frederick William in the Commonwealth's affairs, and it also calmed the Commonwealth's magnates who lived near Brandenburg's border. 
With Sobieski's side project for regaining Prussia abandoned for the moment, the Polish king focused all of his attention on the treaty itself. He denounced loudly and repeatedly the French ambassador's puppet, a man named Jan Mortsen, whom one historian described as a brilliant, wily intriguer, a man of letters and a strong admirer of everything French. It certainly helps that the French ambassador had a huge slush fund, as it was called, to grease Mortsen's wheels, yet the latter was the treasurer of the Commonwealth, so the influence he possessed could not be underestimated. Finally, after intercepting some of his letters, Sobieski was able to conclusively remove Mortsen from proceedings, and the latter skulked off to a comfortable French exile. After several weeks of intensive negotiations, Sobieski and his allies managed to successfully confirm the treaty with the Habsburgs on the 31st of March 1683, and the same closed deliberations on the 18th of April. Perhaps the biggest bone of contention had been the issue of subsidies, and precisely how financially supportive the Habsburgs were prepared to be of the Commonwealth in the coming campaign. Eventually, 360,000 florins were paid to the Commonwealth to maintain an army, 150,000 to a regional noble named Lubomirsky, who could field an army independent of the Commonwealth government, and 70,000 florins were needed to pay for the ambassador's expenses. A bill of 580,000 florins was thus presented to Leopold's court by the end of the process, yet the whole endeavour seemed worth it. How worth it, Vienna itself would discover in due course. The money thus began to flow into the Commonwealth's coffers, replenishing its stores and enabling Sobieski to begin his preparations, which we will examine in the Jan Sobieski biography, currently ongoing in the Patron's Extra Feed, wink wink, nudge nudge. The mustering began across the Commonwealth, as Sobieski prepared to meet the Ottoman nemesis yet again. As corn stores were built up, gunpowder transported and militias raised, it seemed on the surface as though Sobieski was preparing for just another campaign against the old Ottoman enemy. Yet this would not be just another campaign. Hundreds of miles to the southeast, Kara Mustafa was betting his reputation and probably his life on the campaign to follow. Yet his sultan's abandonment of his troops and his placing of all authority in the hands of the Grand Vizier, as they made for Belgrade at the end of March 1683, suggested that this bet was a safe one. This teeming host of men, so confident, so formidable and so well supported by a cabal of allies and vassals, was unmatched in the western world. Only Kara Mustafa, Sultan Mehmed IV and a few other advisers knew what the true destination of this armed force was. It was time to strike for Vienna once more. Next time, we'll examine the last few months of security for the Habsburgs, as the Ottomans begin their final long march towards their destination, and Vienna seeks to lull itself into a false sense of security, even while its representatives argue desperately for immediate action and reinforcement. Until then, I hope you've enjoyed our coverage, history friends. My name is Zach, thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.